0: Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, November 21st, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric
1: Steiner. And here's a look at today's top stories. Sam Altman joins Microsoft after his expulsion
0: from OpenAI. The Israeli army shows alleged footage of foreign hostages in Gaza's main hospital.
1: Javier Millet is elected as Argentina's president.
0: A Colorado court rules that Donald Trump can remain on the 2024 ballot.
1: Yemen's Houthi rebels seize an Israeli-linked cargo ship.
0: NATO's chief expresses concern about secessionist rhetoric in Bosnia.
1: Taiwan's William Lai names the island's former U.S. envoy as his running mate.
0: The Biden administration will approve new controversial Native American tribal gaming rules. The Supreme Court rejects Derek Chauvin's appeal in the George Floyd murder case. And former U.S. First Lady Rosalind Carter dies at 96.
1: In our top story, Sam Altman joins Microsoft after his OpenAI ousting. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNBC, CNN, Associated Press, the Christian Science Monitor, and Verge. Just three days after being ousted as CEO of OpenAI, Sam Altman is joining Microsoft to lead a new advanced artificial intelligence research team. Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella announced on X that Altman and other OpenAI employees are joining the company. The OpenAI board fired its co-founder and CEO on Friday in a dramatic turn of events that also saw President and Chairman Greg Brockman removed from his position. The chat GBT maker claims that Altman's lack of candid communication with the board had been affecting its performance. After the chaotic boardroom restructuring, OpenAI named its third CEO in as many days, hiring Emmett Shear, the former CEO of Amazon's Twitch, as interim CEO. Mira Marathi served as interim CEO in the days after Altman's ousting, and she will return to her role as OpenAI's chief technology officer. Scheer said he would hire an independent investigator to look into Altman's firing and generate a report within 30 days. He added that Altman's departure was not related to a specific disagreement on safety. Microsoft was quick to hire Altman and other OpenAI employees in order to stabilize the tech startup and keep key talent away from rivals Amazon and Google. Microsoft has invested billions in OpenAI, and some speculated Altman would return as OpenAI CEO before he joined Microsoft. Altman will reportedly have the CEO title of his new group, a position usually reserved for separate businesses within the software giants such as Xbox. Nadella said that Microsoft remained, quote, committed to its partnership with OpenAI and that he will work closely with Shear. All
0: right, thanks, Eric. We have some narratives on this dizzying and developing story. Let's start with Narrative A from Wired Magazine. The past 72 hours have been a whirlwind in the artificial intelligence space, but one thing is abundantly clear amid the chaos. Microsoft is the winner of the fallout between Sam Altman and OpenAI. In addition to hiring one of the most prominent names in the AI field, Microsoft has also brought many of his colleagues and stocked up in the AI arms race against Google and Amazon. Microsoft will still work to get returns on its massive investment in OpenAI, but the company just gained an enormous amount of human capital. Microsoft headquarters is celebrating on Monday.
1: Narrative B comes from Slate. Everything about the Sam Altman OpenAI saga seems off, and there is so much unclarity that it is impossible to make any declarations about the parties involved. While Microsoft appears like it scored a major victory, it still needs to make sure that OpenAI can remain successful, and there is very little information about Altman's new endeavor with the company. The past three days are full of confusion, and there's a lot to untangle before any winners are declared.
0: And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. They predict a 20% chance that Sam Altman will return as the CEO of OpenAI before the year 2026.
1: You, along with Sam Altman, I would say that you are an enormous amount of human capital as well, Scott.
0: Yeah, yeah. I've been called a, a huge pile of human <laughs> capital on a number of occasions. <laughs> The Israeli army shows some alleged footage of foreign hostages in Gaza's hospital. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Times of Israel, Reuters, BBC News, The Guardian, and Al Jazeera. Israel's military released video footage on Sunday allegedly showing two foreign hostages being taken into Gaza's Al-Shifa hospital, the strip's largest, during Hamas's October 7th surprise attack. The army also said on Sunday that it had found a tunnel complex near the hospital which could not be independently verified. Israel has repeatedly claimed that al-Shifa was being used as a Hamas command center, something both the group and doctors at the hospital have denied. Hamas did not immediately comment on the claims, although the group has admitted in the past that it did take some hostages to hospitals for treatment. The Israeli military also claimed that Corporal Noah Marcino, one of over 200 people taken hostage on October 7th, has been killed by Hamas, who had claimed she had been killed in an Israeli airstrike. A group of 28 premature babies, which were being held at Al Shifa, evacuated Gaza on Sunday, crossing into Egypt for medical care. On Saturday, the World Health Organization said that Al Shifa was no longer able to provide care to patients, and many of the sick and injured were now being directed to the seriously overwhelmed and barely functioning Indonesian hospital. Israeli forces are now operating around the Indonesian hospital, with Gaza's health ministry spokesperson saying that Israeli artillery strikes killed 12 Palestinians in the hospital's complex, adding that the situation is catastrophic as hundreds of people are still trapped. Meanwhile, a delegation of Arab and Muslim ministers traveled to Beijing to call on Monday for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza, in the first leg of a tour to push for an end to hostilities and to allow humanitarian aid into the devastated Palestinian enclave. The officials holding meetings with China's top diplomat, Wang Yi, were from Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Egypt, Indonesia, Palestinian authorities, and the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, among others. On Sunday, the Palestinian Health Ministry said that over 13,000 people in the Gaza Strip have reportedly been killed, over half of which were women and children. The ministry also reported 30,000 people wounded. The official Israeli death toll, meanwhile, stands at 1,200 people. Scott, thanks for
1: the update of the tragic situation. The round of spins begins with a pro-Israel narrative coming from Jerusalem Post. Israel has presented evidence that terrorists from Hamas have placed their headquarters underneath hospitals in Gaza, specifically to use civilians at the facilities as human shields. Indeed, the U.S. has also verified that Hamas is using al-Shifa as a command center. Despite this, Israel, which has the right to defend its borders, is doing everything it can to minimize harm to the civilian population and provide aid while conducting critical military operations.
0: And Middle East Eye brings us the pro-Palestine narrative. Even if Israel's claims that Hamas is using hospitals as bases of operation are valid, it has an obligation under international law to protect these facilities during armed conflict. As Israel is committing horrendous human rights violations in Gaza, the international community must step up efforts to end the assault on Palestinians and work to address a humanitarian cataclysm.
1: The Metaculous Prediction community gives us a nerd narrative. They say there's a 50% chance that Israel will lift the blockade on electricity, food, gasoline, and medicine in
0: Gaza by January
1: 2024.
0: I uh, just was listening to the latest episode of the Lex Friedman podcast. John Mearsheimer is a is a, uh, I guess kind of controversial historian who brings a lot of perspective to the various conflicts that are going on. I recommend it to uh, A lot. It's it's the newest episode, 401, of uh, Lex Friedman. It provides a lot of context for this conflict. I'll have to check that out.
1: Javier Malay has been elected Argentina's president. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, Associated Press, Financial Times, Reuters, New York Times, and Breitbart. Self-styled anarcho-capitalist Javier Milei has been elected president of Argentina after he defeated economy minister Sergio Massa of the ruling Peronist coalition on Sunday in a significant shift for the country battling a crippling economic crisis. With over 99% of the ballots tallied in the presidential runoff, Milei secured over 55% against Massa's over 43%, a margin wider than pre-election polls predictions and the widest since Argentina's return to democracy in 1983. Massa seated to defeat Malay, the libertarian economist and first-term congressman who will take office on December 10th, even before results had been released. The president-elect has promised to close the central bank, slash public expenditure, and dollarize the economy to deal with rising poverty, empty coffers, skyrocketing inflation, and the IMF's $44 billion debt program. However, it's unclear whether Malay will have the political support to carry out the drastic economic changes that have been pledged, as his Liberty Advances Party holds just seven seats in the 72-member Senate and 38 seats in the 257-member House. Though he had campaigned as a libertarian, Malay has expressed socially conservative positions, such as opposing the legalization of abortion and discouraging trade with communist countries.
0: All right, Eric, this political story has spawned some political narratives. Let's start with the left spin from The Guardian. Argentines have chosen to take a risky leap in the dark as they desperately seek to resolve the country's worst economic crisis in decades. There's a significant risk that Argentina and its democratic institutions will collapse under Millet's leadership, especially if the erratic populist makes good on his promise to radically try to transform the economy. And
1: we go from The Guardian to the National Review for The Right Narrative. Argentina used to be one of the wealthiest nations in the world, but Peronism has destroyed the economy and badly damaged its democratic institutions over the past eight decades. Millet's victory represents the ultimate defeat of a corrupt system as the nation wants real change and for the country to return to a path of normality.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. In my mind, in my ignorant. American mind, I think of Argentina as being a major oil producer and a major beef producer. And what more could you want? Eight decades of corruption. Gosh. Yeah, I guess that'll do it. I don't oh. I guess no matter how much gas yeah. and meat
1: you have, that'll, uh, yeah. that'll do it. Yeah, it doesn't matter what you have.
0: The Colorado court rules Trump to remain on the ballot. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Washington Post, New York Times, and BBC News. A Colorado court Friday ruled against a suit to bar Donald Trump from the state's primary ballot, but criticized the former U.S. president and Republican favorite for the GOP 2024 presidential nomination for his actions around the January 6, 2021 Capitol riots. Judge Sarah B. Wallace of the Denver court ruled that Trump had engaged in insurrection against the Constitution, citing his speech on January 6, which saw him call his supporters to fight like hell. Trump's lawyers, however, dismissed the judge's argument, claiming protection under the First Amendment and arguing his speech wasn't a call for violence. A former Defense Department witness also advocated for Trump, saying he had authorized the National Guard to take action that day. Judge Wallace, however, also found that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which disqualifies those who took an oath to support the Constitution and then engaged in insurrection, from holding office, doesn't apply to Trump as it doesn't include the presidential oath. The Colorado case is one of many legal challenges to Trump's candidacy across the nation, with courts in Minnesota, Michigan, and New Hampshire having also recently backed Trump on the 14th Amendment question. Meanwhile, the Colorado plaintiffs have announced plans to appeal Friday's ruling to the state Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court, however, could end up with the final say, as legal experts predict the case may be taken up with the nation's highest court. Thank
1: you, Scott, for the facts. PJ Media gives us our first spin. It's a pro-Trump narrative. The Colorado plaintiffs have made their own definition of insurrection in another failed attempt to keep Trump off the ballot. While the judge's ruling is undoubtedly a victory for the former president, her insurrection opinion is a concerning echo of the left's falsehoods about the riots.
0: And an anti-Trump narrative comes from the Denver Post. Donald Trump took the presidential oath of office on January 20th, 2017, swearing to preserve, protect, and defend the US Constitution. Instead, he engaged in an elaborate scheme to overturn the results of a free and fair election. For months, he spread disinformation about the validity of the 2020 election results. He has no place on the ballot.
1: Metaculous Prediction Community has a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 41% chance that Donald Trump will be removed or blocked from the primary electoral ballot of a US state under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment by July 15, 2024. Yemen's Houthi rebels seize an Israeli-linked cargo ship. Here are the facts as agreed upon by France 24, Al Jazeera, Guardian, Associated Press, The Japan Times, and Arab News. Iran-backed Houthi rebels claim to have captured a cargo ship and taken its 25 crew members hostage on Sunday in one of the world's most crucial shipping routes in the Red Sea off Yemen's port city of Hodaida. The rebels argue the seizure of the Bahamas-flagged Galaxy leader, which is allegedly Israeli-owned, is a reaction to the, quote, heinous acts against our Palestinian brothers in Gaza and the West Bank. However, Israel claims the hijacked freighter was a British-owned and Japanese-operated vessel on its way from Turkey to India and had a range of nationalities, but none was Israeli. The Associated Press reported that ownership details in public shipping databases linked the ship's owners to Raycar Carriers, a company founded by Israeli businessman Abraham Rami Unger. Meanwhile, Japan said the galaxy leader was operated by Japanese shipping firm Nippon Yusen adding that Tokyo had directly approached the Houthis as well as Saudi Arabia, Oman, Israel, and Iran. On Monday, Iran's foreign ministry rejected the Israeli accusations of Tehran's involvement in the hijacking and claimed that, quote, resistance groups in the region act independently and spontaneously based on
0: their interests. Thanks, Eric. We have some conflicting narratives on this story. Pro-Iran narrative comes from Press TV. By accusing Iran of being the mastermind behind the hijacking of the Israeli-linked freighter, Tel Aviv is merely trying to conceal the regional dimension of Muslim resistance against Israel's devastating aggression in Gaza. The hijacking of the ship underlines that the Houthis are an autonomous force serious about fighting alongside the Palestinians. If Israel wants to avoid total defeat and an incalculable regional expansion of the conflict, it must stop its campaign of collective punishment immediately. Jerusalem
1: Post brings us the anti-Iran narrative. The hijacking of this freighter is the latest episode in the broad regional campaign by Iranian-backed proxies to threaten Israel's existence. Iran is now building on its questionable expertise in hijacking free world cargo ships in the Red Sea. Since Tehran has yet to face any consequences, it's now using its dangerous Houthi forces to escalate the Gaza war and jeopardize world trade. It's time the international community puts Iran and its proxies in their place to prevent a regional escalation. And we have
0: another nerd narrative prediction from Metaculus. They say there's a 2.5% chance that Israel will carry out and explicitly acknowledge a deadly attack on Iran before the year 2024. NATO's chief is concerned about secessionist rhetoric and Russian influence in Bosnia. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Euractiv, Fox News, Associated Press, Reuters, Voice of America, and N1. NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg warned about risks for Bosnia-Herzegovina from secessionist rhetoric and foreign interference, particularly from Russia, as Bosnian Serb leaders have increasingly expressed their intent to split away and join neighboring Serbia. Remarks came on Monday. Stoltenberg, who is on a two-day visit to Sarajevo in a Balkan tour, further reasserted the alliance's commitment to the stability and security in the country and the region, as well as to Bosnia's sovereignty and territorial integrity. The statement comes days after the U.S. Treasury placed sanctions on multiple individuals and entities to contain Russian influence in the Balkans, including two politicians directly linked to the leader of the Bosnia-Serb majority Republika Srpska. Milorad Dodik, who himself is already under US sanctions. Meanwhile, Ukraine's Volodymyr Zelensky has claimed that the Kremlin is planning to stoke tensions in the Balkans to distract from its alleged military setbacks in Ukraine. Russia maintains significant influence in the region, particularly among ethnic Serb communities. Since the outbreak of the Ukraine war, NATO has ramped up its support for the Balkan country that has been in its membership action plan for more than a decade. This year, the alliance endorsed a new defense capability building package for the country. Bosnia was divided roughly into two large autonomous regions in the aftermath of the ninety two to ninety five Bosnian War under a US brokered peace agreement, one run by Bosnian Serbs and the other by mostly Muslim Bosniaks and Bosnian Croats. Thank you, Scott. The first spin is an establishment critical
1: narrative coming from RT. It's the West, particularly the U.S., that has been pushing Bosnia's Republika Srpska for independence, as Washington insists on old imperialist tricks to bully pro-Russian politicians and to force them to recognize a
0: non-approved high example in Sarajevo that has sought to empower a central government and we have a pro-establishment narrative from foreign affairs. Tensions across the Balkans have recently mounted to the brink of a military confrontation, as Russia has resorted to its longtime ally Serbia to open another front in Europe and test Western commitment to that region. Though many NATO allies may not want to divert focus from Ukraine by now, a swift, decisive action to address ongoing crises in the Balkans is needed to prevent further problems and costs. The nerds from Metaculus say there's a 10% chance that more than 500 combatants will
1: die as a result of an armed conflict in the Balkans by 2025. News coming from Taiwan as Lai picks a former U.S. envoy as a presidential running mate. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Nikkei Asia, South China Morning Post, Al Jazeera, Bloomberg and Taipei Times. Taiwanese vice president and current presidential frontrunner William Lai announced on Monday that he has chosen the island’s former de facto ambassador to the U.S, Sal Bikim to run alongside him in the ruling Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP, presidential ticket in January’s election. The 52-year-old diplomat has been lauded for her influence and relationship with U.S. officials, policymakers, businesses, civil society, and others to boost Taiwan's deterrence and resilience as the PRC seeks to isolate the island diplomatically. Beijing, which last week claimed that the Lai Sao ticket would be a union of separatists that could lead to a cross strait military conflict, has blacklisted and sanctioned twice Sao for alleged collusion with the U.S., as well as provoking confrontation between mainland China and Taiwan. The PRC conducted military drills around the island of Taiwan in August upon Lai's return from a brief visit to the U.S., calling them a severe warning against, quote, independence separatist forces that were allegedly colluding with external forces to provoke Beijing. Meanwhile, the prospective China-friendly opposition alliance between the Kuomintang or KMT and Taiwan People's Party or TTP failed to appoint the joint presidential nominee on Saturday as previously announced. It's unclear whether they will be able to strike a deal by Friday, the deadline for officially registering candidates. At a campaign rally on Sunday, Lai addressed rumors that some 60% of the voters opposes DPP to remain as the ruling party by stressing that opinion polls indicate that roughly three quarters disapprove of the KMT and
0: about 80 to 90% reject the TPP. All right, Eric, the pro-China narrative on this story comes from the Global Times. If Cao Bi Kim becomes Taiwan's vice president, she wouldn't pursue more sovereignty for its people, but rather prop up her Western economic and military partners. In her previous positions of governmental influence, Cao purposefully instigated Beijing to build confrontational public opinion and endanger people across the straits. Her goal isn't peace. It's to grow her personal power at the expense of the mainland and its neighboring citizens. We follow that up with an anti-China narrative coming from Focus Taiwan.
1: If there were a perfect resume for the vice president, Sal would have it. After graduating from Columbia University in the 1990s, she began her foreign affairs career as the head of the DPP's liaison office in the U.S., after which she excelled in both lawmaking and international diplomacy as a legislator at home and lead ambassador to Washington for more than a decade. Sal has proven herself as a patriot throughout her entire career, and now she's prepared to defend
0: her country against Beijing from the
1: executive office.
0: And another nerd narrative prediction from Metaculous, they say there's a 54% chance that the Democratic Progressive Party will win the 2024 presidential election in Taiwan. The Biden administration will approve an off-reservation tribal casino. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Yoganet International, East Bay Times, and Fox News. U.S. President Biden's administration is reportedly expected to approve the off-reservation construction of a Native American tribes casino, according to sources close to the matter. The Department of the Interior's Bureau of Indian Affairs is set to greenlight the Coquille Indian Tribes Casino in Medford, Oregon, as soon as this week. The effort by the Coquille tribe, also known as the Cedars at Bear Creek, has been ongoing for almost a decade, having been first proposed during former President Obama's administration. Critics, however, fear Biden is continuing Obama's trend of easing gaming and land trust acquisition restrictions that they say will threaten the sovereign rights of tribal governments. The Bureau opened its first environmental impact statement to public comment in November 2022. As the final version is set to be released soon, the agency has been met with criticism ranging from several regional tribes, tribes nationwide, and bipartisan lawmakers. Such critics included the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations, which represents 13 tribes in California, as well as the California Nations Indian Gaming Association and Senators Ron Wyden and Jeff Merkley, both Democrats of Oregon, and Senator Alex Padilla, Democrat of California. A main point of contention relates to the proposed casino's potential impact on neighboring tribes, such as the Cow Creek Band of Umpqua Tribe of Indians. Last year, Wyden, Merkley, and Padilla wrote to Interior Secretary Deb Holland, stating that it will likely lead to all-out gaming conflicts between Oregon and California tribes. They further argued it would negatively impact their state's respective tribes that rely on the income generated by their gaming facilities and utilize those funds to provide vital governmental services. This comes as the California Nation's Indian Gaming Association, which represents 52 tribes, Rejected a new sports betting initiative proposed by Casey Thompson, a poker expert, and Reeve Collins, a founder of blockchain and cryptocurrency companies including Tether. Thompson said his goal is to end losses to offshore online sports betting by putting operations under the control of tribes and state regulation. Scott, thanks for laying out the facts of that story, and I'm willing to bet there's some spins.
1: In fact, there are. Let's check out this one from Public Radio Tulsa. It's a pro-establishment narrative. This is a solid policy from the Biden administration. This discussion cannot forget to include how such policies impact smaller tribes. For example, the United Ketawa Band of Cherokee Indians and the Kyaliggy Tribal Town in Oklahoma, both of whom haven't received much federal land compared to other tribes, are in desperate need of an off-reservation casino to help their citizens who only make an average of $1,000 per month. This is a balanced approach
0: that takes into account multiple tribal nations. And KVTL 10 of Oregon brings us the establishment critical narrative the Coquille tribe isn't taking into consideration the negative impact this off-reservation project will have on the future generations of Indians living within reservation boundaries. While opening up a casino more than 100 miles away from home will certainly bring in some revenue, the jobs it will create will be on non native land, leaving Indians of all tribes without an opportunity to access such opportunities. This sets a bad precedent that can negatively impact many Native American tribes nationwide. The nerds from Intaculus
1: say there's a 50% chance that the last U.S. casino will close by at least December of the year 2299. <coughs> In our next story, the Supreme Court rejects an appeal of a former officer convicted in the George Floyd killing. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Reuters, Fox News, CBS, and ABC News. The U.S. Supreme Court declined to hear an appeal by former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin on Monday for his conviction in the murder of George Floyd. The justices rejected Chauvin's appeal that he filed after a Minnesota appellate court upheld his 2021 murder conviction and rejected his request for a new trial. His lawyers argued that jury bias and the past rulings of the preceding judge deprived Chauvin of a fair trial. Chauvin has claimed that new evidence shows that he did not cause Floyd's death. In a motion filed in federal court last week, Chauvin claims he never would have pleaded guilty in 2021 had he known about the theory that Floyd died from complications of a rare tumor called a paraganglioma that in rare cases can cause a fatal surge of adrenaline. Chauvin was found guilty of second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter in a Minnesota state trial and sentenced to 22 and a half years in prison. He later also pleaded guilty to a separate federal civil rights charge for which he was sentenced to 21 years in federal prison. He is serving both sentences concurrently in a federal prison in Arizona. Chauvin is separately appealing his federal civil rights charges. Floyd died on May 25th, 2020, after Chauvin pinned him to the ground with his knee on Floyd's neck for over nine minutes. Floyd's death sparked worldwide protests over racism and police brutality.
0: Thanks for those facts, Eric. We have a left narrative spin on this story from Newsweek. Derek Chauvin received a fair trial and a just sentence. Chauvin received due process and must now deal with the consequences of his actions while he is in prison. This case proves that no one, not even a police officer, is above the law. This ruling is angering many on the right, which shows the continued issues with systemic racism in America, as shown by this historic case. The right narrative comes from Breitbart. Chauvin's trial was
1: obviously not fair or unbiased. The case received extensive pre-trial publicity that likely poisoned the jury pool, and it would be naive to say that the threat of violence evidenced did not have an influence on the jury's decisions. Armored cars and National Guard troops were needed to keep the peace, and this case should be reheard in light of the new evidence.
0: Our final story, Rosalind Carter, the former First Lady, dies at 96. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Ossoff, the Associated Press, The Guardian, and USA Today. The Carter Center announced the death of former First Lady Rosalind Carter, 96, in her Georgia home on Sunday. Diagnosed with dementia in May, Rosalind entered hospice care at home on Friday, joining her 99-year-old husband, former President Jimmy Carter, who has been receiving end-of-life treatment since February. Senator John Ossoff, Democrat of Georgia, said the U.S. would remember Rosalind for her compassionate nature and passion for women's rights, human rights, and mental health reform. In an official joint statement, President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden stated that Rosalind was a champion for equal rights, an advocate for mental health, and a supporter of the often unseen and uncompensated caregivers. Meanwhile, Jimmy Carter, in a statement issued via the Carter Center, called her an equal partner in everything he ever accomplished, adding, She gave me wise guidance and encouragement when I needed it. Aside from her husband, Rosalind, dubbed the Steel Magnolia during her White House years between 1977 and 81, is survived by four children, 11 grandchildren, and 14 great-grandchildren.
1: Scott, thanks for those facts. Our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Associated Press. Rosalind Carter was a devoted mother and wife, but also a great humanitarian, public servant, and global leader. She will be recognized for her vast efforts in championing those who often didn't have a voice for themselves, including those with mental health issues and disabilities. She will be long remembered on the world stage among nations, organizations,
0: and citizens of the United States and beyond. And CNN brings us the establishment critical narrative. The enduring legacies of Rosalind Carter and her husband Jimmy are also a reminder that times have changed a great deal since the Carters embraced true populism in the White House. The Carters nurtured an establishment critical stance touching on issues related to anti-war protests, civil rights, and other issues, actions that no administration has quite embodied since. In this challenging historic moment, Rosalind Carter's life's work shows just how far today's institutions have to go to rebuild trust with the American people. Thanks for listening to the Verity
1: Podcast for Tuesday, November 21st, 2023.
0: Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more
1: at Verity.News and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity. Party podcast.